Asian violence is surging across this country. Deadly shootings in Atlanta. This morning, a man attacked and assaulted a 52-year-old Asian-American woman. New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco have all reported a rise in hate crimes against Asian-Americans. Across the country, over 3,000 reported incidents of hate against the Asian community. Welcome to Many Roads to Hear and to our special series, In Conversation. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. Today, we return to the topic we began to explore this spring, the historical roots of anti-Asian violence. This series is produced as part of the Rise Against Hate Coalition based in Oregon and made possible by a generous contribution from Anne Nato Campbell. In the last few years, the U.S. had a disturbing rise in anti-Asian rhetoric and violence, including a racially motivated mass shooting in Atlanta, Georgia. In this episode, we will hear two voices in dialogue talking through major cases in the Supreme Court and how legislation has affected Asian American civil rights including Executive Order 9066, which incarcerated Japanese Americans during World War II. In conversation today are Peggy Nagai and Chris Ling. Both worked as attorneys and have been active in diversity, equity, and inclusion work in the Oregon legal community. Peggy is the owner and principal of Peggy Nagai Consulting. Chris is now a software engineer, and they spoke at the Japanese American Museum of Oregon in May 2021, in front of the actual jail cell that once held lawyer and civil rights advocate Min Yasui. And you'll hear a lot more about Min during their conversation. So Chris, tell me a little bit about your story growing up in Hawaii. I am fourth generation on my dad's side living in Hawaii. So my great-grandfather emigrated to Hawaii back when it was still the Hawaiian kingdom. And yeah, grew up, uh, was born in Oahu, uh, lived there, lived in Honolulu for about three years and then spent the remainder, um, vast majority of my childhood on Maui, um, just various parts of the island. On my mom's side, she's a Korean immigrant. So she came to the United States as an adult, uh, met my dad uh, when he was going to law school over at USD in San Diego, and then moved back to Hawaii together. And uh, she still lives there. Where'd your grandfather immigrate from? I believe it was um, Guangdong in China. And so it came over as a, as a laborer. Um, you know, like there's a large plantation history and laborer history where immigrants came from all parts of the Pacific Rim to work in Hawaii, left the islands when I was 18, and then have been kind of living in the mainland, uh, East Coast, West Coast, and most currently Portland for the last 14 years. Uh, yeah, and here's where I am today. What, what about you, Peggy? Like, uh, you're, you're coming from a completely different perspective. You're a local from here, from Oregon. <laughs> I'm a native Oregonian, born in Portland but raised in Boring. And oftentimes, you know, when you grow up in a place called Boring, Oregon, I was, as a young child, embarrassed about that. And now when I introduce myself, they think boring is an adjective for the state of Oregon. So I have to say, no, it's not an adjective. It's actually a proper noun and a place in Oregon. But growing up on a farm, uh, berries and vegetables, and probably working from the time I was about six in the berry fields, one of the things I remember most is being poor. And then being poor is shameful, You know, we didn't have indoor plumbing, so that meant in grade school, I didn't really ask friends over to stay overnight, because who wants to go to an outhouse? 
and you know we had a really old car so it's not i mean it took me a long time to move away from that sort of you're poor it's your fault to understand the history and japanese american incarceration my parents and all my relatives were incarcerated and they had to start all over again after the war so that has really informed a lot of my what i do what i did why i went into the law all that stuff Do you remember how we first got introduced to each other? Right. We spearheaded Minyasui's nomination for Presidential Medal of Freedom. And it was an interesting process because there's no criteria. The president decides on his or her, well, it's always his so far, his um, discretion. And there was an unwritten rule that only one Asian American was going to get that Medal of Freedom every year. So not only did we have to make sure that people knew who Minyasui was, but we also had to make sure that all the Asian American Congress people and leaders and Asian organizations would support his nomination. So we wrote an extensive memorandum to the president saying this is why Minyasui ought to receive a Presidential Medal of Freedom. And I know you worked on parts of that, right? Yeah, I, I helped do some legal research around that. And then I, I think I, I was the co-chair of the Oregon Minority Lawyers Association at the time. And so I drafted that endorsement letter and got a sign-off from us as well as the Oregon Asian Pacific American Bar Association. These acronyms are very, very long. But Peggy, for people who don't necessarily know about the history of Minyasui, like I certainly didn't know the specific history of Minyasui, like, could you give us a little bit of background as to, you know, like who Min was and the context of why this nomination was so important? He grew up in Hood River, Oregon. He was inclined to be community oriented. So at the age of 15, he started the Hood River chapter of the Japanese American Citizens League, which is pretty amazing at the age of 15. He was, I think, the third oldest son, and his father, who had immigrated to the U.S. but couldn't become a naturalized U.S. citizen, his father had wanted to become a lawyer, but they hooked the right to become a lawyer with eligibility for citizenship. So his father became an orchardist and very successful businessman. But Min went to undergraduate at the U of O, graduated ROTC Phi Beta Kappa, and then graduated from the law school there and was the first Japanese-American member of the Oregon State Bar. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor, his father sent him a telegram and said, come home, there's war, you need to fight for our country. And, and he did. He tried to activate his ROTC, second lieutenant status, but they rejected him seven times or nine times or something like that. And... He wanted to find a test case because he felt that it was wrong that Executive Order 9066 was passed and signed by President Roosevelt that said that military authorities can decide who can stay and who can leave the Western Defense Command. And Yasui was a patriot. He believed in the Constitution. He felt like, as to U.S. citizens... That law without due process, without any due process, was unconstitutional. And he tried to find a good plaintiff 
World War I veteran, children, you know, that whole kind of, this is a good case. He couldn't find anybody, so he did it himself. And so he intentionally violated that curfew and spent nine months in solitary confinement in the Multnomah County Jail. So what I found to be so incredibly inspiring for me was, you know, like we all talk about as lawyers, we are upholding justice or the Constitution. And here's a, here's a man who puts his own life, his well-being, you know, his career, his future, puts his belief in America and the Constitution and the system of laws that he'd go and put himself in harm's way to his detriment, just in the sake of, I essentially say just in the sake of, but for justice. Yeah, who's willing, especially uh, Asian Americans whose parents said, work hard, you know, get a good job, be a lawyer, be a doctor, be a scientist, to actually put their career and their liberty on the line. And at the age of 25, right. I mean, I, I just find that remarkable. And similarly, that there were, what, four different court cases that were contemporaneous, Korematsu, Hirabayashi, Endo, and, and Yasui. And so... For those who know the history a little bit more, I mean, the outcome of all four of those cases was not favorable in the U.S. Supreme Court. The Executive Order 9066 did stand. People of Japanese descent were incarcerated and sent, uh, forcibly migrated from where they where they were, and their property was taken from them. Maybe I'm a little envious or jealous, but you were able to connect to that part of history by being involved later on as you became a legal professional with Min Yasui. Can you tell a little bit about, you know, like how you started working with Min and the Quorum Nobis petition that you worked on? It was 1979, and we had in Portland the Day of Remembrance, which is now a national commemoration every February 19th for Executive Order 9066 to, to say never again. And we were having a program at the North Portland Livestock Pavilion, which is where Japanese Americans in Oregon were put into horse stalls and animal stalls. Min was a speaker at that event. And it was pretty amazing because I'd never heard an Asian American with such a booming voice and a great orator. And I went, wow, he is somebody to reckon with. And then afterwards, he called me up and said, I'd like to get a group of lawyers together to talk about the possibility of reopening my World War II case. I gathered a group of Asian lawyers together in Portland, and we had a meeting with him. And what astounded me was, first of all, this was a case for our community. Second of all, we didn't know the, necessarily the procedural writ that we were going to use. But third of all, a lot of those lawyers started analyzing his case as though it were negligence or as though it was any ordinary case rather than an extraordinary opportunity you know, to talk about justice and to bring justice to the communities here. And so after that meeting, I said to him, I don't care if anyone else wants to do this. I'll do whatever you want me to do. This is a case for our community. 
And he said, okay, well, I want you to be my lead attorney. Uh, and that's how it started. So I guess one of the benefits of us both being attorneys and both, again, having this extraordinary opportunities in our lives to work on things related to Minyasui's, I think it also puts our lens in terms of focusing on the historical context of not just what happened in World War II, but with Asians and Asian Americans in the United States, just categorically, institutionally, from when we first started emigrating to the United States. I think we were going to spend some time just like kind of like talking about the milestone cases that sort of construct that narrative of where we stand today as Asian Americans, particularly in light of the recent tragedies that happened in Atlanta and how much of that is symptomatic of these institutional policies and uh, legislation that affect us even today. Yes, we looked at Oregon history. And as the Chinese came over in the 1800s, there was this belief that Chinese women were prostitutes, maybe partly because there were very few women who came over to begin with, but when they did come over and what they could do if they came immigrated to the U.S., and they didn't necessarily see prostitution in the same way. They saw it as a means to an end to get established in Oregon, not necessarily about morality. But what's interesting is that by 1860, there were 12 Chinese brothels had sprung up in Portland, uh, run by Chinese merchants or by Tang associations. And the city of Portland enacted an ordinance to suppress prostitution in 1871. But the question is, one, why did this happen? Two, why was it that women couldn't get jobs in other industries? And then what's the impact, you know, from all the way back then to Atlanta? Right. Because I could already see that parallel just in how you're describing that, like uh, this notion of, you know, Asian women as the exotic, the desirable. I mean, that's encoded in even in this history in the 19th century. And it is a very strong parallel to it the way that people perceive like massage parlors and spas today. And I think what's amazing is we don't know necessarily why we think of exotic, erotic Asian women in that sexualized, racialized way, but it's right here in the history. Right. And that actually in the end, Congress passed the Page Act in 1875, which prohibited the immigration of any Chinese woman who was not a merchant's wife and any Mongolian woman who entered the country for purposes of prostitution. They passed a federal law to prohibit that. And that laid the foundation really for the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. Do you want to say something about the Chinese Exclusion Act? Well, I, I mean, I think the the way that that legislation also sort of impacted, even in Hawaii, like that completely shifted the tides of how people started coming in to work on the plantation after that. And and so anecdotally speaking, you know, the Chinese were one of the first of, of the, those in Asia and the Pacific Rim to, to come to Hawaii to work as laborers. And, you know, they, they hit this critical mass 
until the passage of this Chinese Exclusion Act. And then from that point on, like other groups started coming in to replace that. I mean, I wouldn't say it was a dominant power structure, but it was a critical mass of a population that was there. So it would be, you know, like uh, Japanese people or the Filipino people coming in to, you know, sort of like fill that vacuum or void um, that, that this act has. So, Chris, can you tell us about the language schools in Hawaii and the Supreme Court case uh, from the 1920s? Yeah. So, in the course of doing research on Minyasui and sort of what he did, you know, like after this, after the World War II and after his incarceration, um, uh, I started looking at cases that he signed on as amicus briefs on through the JACL. The case that I first looked at where he was involved with was 1949, um, Stainback v. Mohawk Kelok Po. And it was a case involving the regulation of Chinese foreign language schools in the territory of Hawaii at the time. But the history of education in, or like education, specifically foreign language education in Hawaii, I find so fascinating because I find language to be such a close connector to culture, right? And if you look at sort of the history behind why they were so prevalent, it was because, again, this outgrowth of the plantation culture and history where you are having large bodies of um, people coming from different countries settling into this new space in Hawaii, sharing their culture and their habits and traditions with each other, but also wanting to preserve it because it was, you know, like they're geographically separated by long, large distances um, from their where they originally came from. And so language was a primary mechanism by which you know they could continue to share not just the language portion but sort of the cultural elements attached to that sort of family values community values that sort of thing and what happened was that basically after world war 1 there's this wave of americanization we had just gone through the first world war and there's a great deal of wanting to show patriotism and viewing language, for teaching the foreign languages as a thing that was antithetical to being an American. And so basically what happened was that in the lens of the, they pitched these regulations to like, say you needed to have these credentials and you needed to be certified uh, in order to have a foreign language school over the age of, you know, like if you're teaching more than two people over the age of, I, I think it was like seven or eight or something like that, and you have to pay like a fee per student. And there are all these restrictions that kind of like governed how you could teach only in the context of foreign language schools. And they were saying that it was, you know, like it was detrimental and it actually impeded the ability for Asians and Asian Americans to assimilate into American culture. But, you know, Chris, I find it interesting that it was called foreign language schools, foreign language schools, when they were really language schools from the people who immigrated to Hawaii. That wasn't foreign to them. It was their language and their culture. But it's through the lens of a white ideology that that would be considered foreign. Yeah, and actually, um, that was a point that they made in one of the two cases involving this. Like, So prior to Steinbeck was Farrington versus Tokushige, and that involved Japanese foreign language schools. And people thought this had settled the issue. But what I thought as I was reading through these cases and the legislation leading up to it and sort of the political history behind it is that 
actors shifted in terms of where their allegiances lied. There wasn't as much of a presence of like the you know, Japanese Americans and Japanese language schools in terms of that support and trying to like knock down these laws, the territorial laws, partially or in large part because they were afraid after World War II of being seen as un-Americans. Right. This became a thing where the most ardent supporters of the foreign language schools, and I hate just saying foreign language, I mean, like just they're just language schools, were saying, no, we created this history. We enabled this mechanism by which we asked for immigrants to come here. They worked. We provided them with a place to work, and they provided us with their services. They have built a community as a result of our exhortation of our need for them for us to grow economically, as a community, politically, socially, economically. And so they should be able to exercise their traditions, their cultures. You know, and that's not antithetical to being American. Another part, I think, of who is an American is the right to become a naturalized citizen. And so it started out with these immigrants from Europe who said that they were <laughs> citizens of the U.S. And then as the Asian immigration started, in 1922, the Supreme Court took the case of Ozawa versus United States. And Ozawa wanted to become a naturalized citizen, and he said all the reasons why he had a right to become a citizen. And the Supreme Court said that if you're neither Caucasian or of African descent, then you are immigrants who are ineligible for citizenship. And Ozawa wasn't either considered Caucasian or African. And then something happened called World War II, and the need for China to become an ally of the United States. To do that, President Roosevelt repealed both the Chinese Exclusion Act and repealed the Anti-Naturalization Acts as it pertained to Chinese, and they could become naturalized citizens. And it was, Roosevelt said, it was all important about winning the war so that and I think this is true throughout our history, that it's the political relationship with our history, with our countries of ancestry, that then impact our rights as Asian Americans. It was not until 1946 then that then South Asians and Filipinos could become naturalized citizens. And I didn't realize that there was this rolling, depending upon the relationship with the U.S., because in 43, what Roosevelt said is Japan was the enemy. Right. And so, therefore, they are definitely not going to be given naturalized citizenship. And it wasn't really until, it wasn't until 52, the McCarran-Walter Act, that Japanese and Koreans could become naturalized citizens. And Korea was really connected to Japan because Japan had invaded Korea and overran, you know, so... And, and this was contemporaneous, too, with the Korean War. And, and so, like, again, in the United States' efforts to combat what they perceived was the spread of communism post-World War II, I mean, exactly what you're saying. Like, it is politically expedient for us to give these carrots to these people at this time. But again, going back to what we have been dancing around the edges a little bit with just 
Asian Americans historically being used as a wedge issue. Like when it is politically expedient for some cohort of the dominant culture to enable, you know, like to like use, you know, to deploy us against other minorities or, or against a particular political ideology or belief, then we'll lavish praise and or we'll say, look, these are, you want to act like this. But then by that same token, as soon as coronavirus happens, you know, like all eyes turn on us as, as, as the outsider, as the pariah, you know, like as the unwanted or the outsider. So I think if, if, if we are all scholars of history, we can really take a lesson in terms of having skepticism when we say, oh, you know, the laws have changed. It's like, but for what reason? So my parents went in the 40s from being unassimilable enemies, mongrels, dogs, not loyal to the U.S. in the 40s to 1965, where William Peterson and the New York Times article said, oh, now they're the model minority. So how is it that 20-some years shifted and we became the model minority? And as you said, talk about being used as a wedge issue with African-American communities saying, well, look at them. They pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. And when they talk about the Japanese who came back, who worked hard, who pulled themselves up from their bootstraps from World War II, I'm reminded of what my father said in 1979. Uh, he said, I have been bitter ever since the war. It's a long time to be bitter. sometimes very frustrating to have to argue both sides of those things and to be like, well, you're saying this, but then you also say this. So like, how am I supposed to position myself with respect to your perception of me? Because your perception of me is very fluid, but it's just rooted in racism, ultimately. Um, and then that and whatever is however you feel is the most appropriate way to denigrate me at a particular point in time, you're going to latch on to that label and apply that. But we're we're not called the model American. We're called the model minority. So that politicization, that you're still a minority. Thinking about, right, the framing of that phrase, like model minority, right? Like there, there's a, there's an erasure of history there, right? Like that's perpetually framing us as being no more than one generation derived from coming to the United States. So yeah, you're a model outsider. But like I've been in Hawaii for four generations. So I've been, I'm a third generation American. You have roots in Oregon. There's just something about that empathetic experience of having like a personal and acute set of experiences growing up with that adversity that makes you equipped to have to stand up when you need to stand up or even in a quiet moment, just saying like, I don't need to accede to this anymore. I don't need to, you know, like fit in. You got to speak up or you're going to get run over. And it's been in recent years, though, that I've said, if not now, when? And especially after George Floyd's murder. If not now, when am I going to speak up? So I've been doing this for a number of years, but in the last year, it's been so liberating to say, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen now. And that was hard for me coming from Hawaii because, you know, like, A, I was surrounded by people who... Again, like get, there, there were no barriers that were evident to me because the people who were successful also looked like me. There were also very many successful white people, but there were there were many Asian, successful Asian people. Um, and we're talking blue collar, white collar, all up and down the spectrum. 
but you know like coming here and and having to reconcile with the fact that oh no like like now i have to be i have to take ownership of this thing and i come from a culture where we don't want to rock the boat you know we call it you know we don't want to make humbug we don't want to go and just cause an imposition on somebody else but learning that the imposition is necessary at times because how else are we going to identify and change our behaviors who we are what is wrong as you were you know you've done in your life like and what min has done in his life seeking out justice unless we interrupt in these moments and have a conversation about them well some of the people that i got into arguments the most about were asian men from hawaii Wow. Uh, in law school. And so it's a delight to know you, to have a strong relationship with you, to work with you on the nomination, but to continue to work with you on the Minyasui Legacy Project to move that forward. Because, you know, for me, it hasn't always been the case. So that, uh, you know, I felt like I was fighting sexism within my own communities and sexism and racism outside my community. This is a great point to start talking about, you know, you're talking about like, where can we speak up and, you know, what is our role? But like going back to how we are being used as wedges, there's cases that are happening in, you know, that are making their way up to the Supreme Court with respect to the Harvard admissions case, where we are being effectively deployed as a wedge. And I wonder kind of what your thoughts are about that, just as some context, right? Like there's a, what is it, the Students for Fair Admissions, this organization that's basically formed by this white man, but uh, has is representing a number of unnamed Chinese-American student applicants for Harvard and claiming that there's racial discrimination in the admissions policies of Harvard. Well, first of all, that organization lost in Texas because they only had white plaintiffs. So then when they brought the suit at Harvard, they decided we need to get more, you know, plaintiffs of color so that they can't accuse us of this is white supremacy. So who do they who do they go to as Asian Americans? Maybe if we don't know the history, Asian American history, if we don't know these cases and we just look to see our our kids are getting better entrance scores than others, but why aren't we being admitted? If you only focus on this kind of narrow part then you can see, yeah, they're discriminated against us. But the long arc of history, you know, we need to look beyond that. And that arc hopefully bends towards justice, which means that if we don't know our own history, we're doomed to repeat it. Right. And I think for some of us in the Asian, Asian American and Asian community, we are doomed to repeat it because of that. And we don't understand the whole fight that the community has had to deal with, not just your kids, not just, you know, the recent 20-year immigration. Yeah. We're talking about a long time. And that's when I, of course, wanted to shake <laughs> <laughs> some Asian Americans and say, do you understand that you're being used? It does give me quite a bit of heartburn whenever I see these cases come up, just because I'm like, well, I there's a lot of context here that I wish I wish I could teach you or I wish that you would be able to find for yourself because I, there are many things about 
Asian American history. I I didn't know about coming from Hawaii. Like I didn't know about Vincent Chin. I didn't know about you know just like the solidarity between Asian Americans and and the Black Civil Rights Movement. We do have a role and we do have a history in the context of civil rights. Minya Sui being another great example of that. But for whatever reason, that's not embedded within our cultural upbringing as Asian Americans. You know, not not in a consistent way. And I, I think that if we were able to achieve that, it would give us some pause and some nuance and you know, like just thoughtfulness about okay, are we being used here? Is there a reason why you care about this now? point with Vincent Chin, because if you looked at that case, he was Chinese American. It was right before his wedding. These two white unemployed Detroit auto workers the night before his wedding killed him using baseball bats. And their sentence, their criminal sentence was three years of probation. And finally, the Justice Department brought a civil lawsuit because the criminal legal lawsuit was horrific. And they did that because they said that your country of Japan, and he's Chinese, your country of Japan is forcing us not to have jobs. So that in and of itself says the whole U.S. understanding of Asian Americans and that we're the perpetual foreigner. I'm, yeah, I can't, I can't even imagine just what life is like with regard to just even like the Vietnamese or the Hmong community or communities that came here as refugees, because I never experienced that. And yet we are put together in this monolith. We have completely different experiences, opportunities to learn things from each other that are just, that we would never have experienced otherwise. I guess, what is it? The awkwardness of having to reconcile with the fact that we don't live in a perfect country. We have a history that's fraught with all kinds of struggle. And that doesn't make it so that this is a lost experiment, right, in democracy or whatever. It's it's something that we take as data and we say, like, okay, we know this now. We know what our history is now. What are we going to do if this is where we want to be is this ideal and, and incorporate that into our day-to-day lives? We need to have a willed remembering mm-hmm. to overcome the willed forgetting and the lack of understanding our history and the willingness to say that everything is fine. That is a willed forgetting of what actually has happened in this country. So what we can do is have a willed remembering. I like that. Many Roads to Hear is a production of The Immigrant Story in collaboration with Portland Radio Project. Many thanks to Anne Nato Campbell for supporting this series. To learn more about the Rise Against Hate Coalition, please visit riseagainsthateoregon.com. This episode was produced by me, Caitlin Dwyer, and this is our last episode of season one. So if you've been keeping up with us all season, thank you. We're so excited to have you along for our first year of storytelling. We'll be back in October 2021 with season two, which starts off with a big story, a two-parter co-told by married Holocaust survivors. It's an epic story of survival and endurance.
If you're in the Portland area, you can listen to the series on Portland Radio Project on two consecutive Sunday afternoons, October 3rd and 10th at 4 p.m. Or stream us wherever you get your podcasts. We're also opening a photography and storytelling exhibit that month at the Oregon Jewish Museum entitled To Bear Witness, which features the stories of genocide survivors from around the world. On a personal note, I'll be taking a few months off for maternity leave. Producer Stephanie Valance will be filling in for me as host while I'm out. Thank you in this episode to Rick March for audio editing, Corey Larkin for music composition, and as always, the man with a dream, executive producer Sankar Raman. <laughs>